Dear God, you are a mighty fortress. Help us to uh, seek your protection each and every day. Help us to be reminded of the grace and love that you have for us. And Lord, just thank you that we can gather in this place and open up your word and learn together. In your name we pray, amen. It was about two weeks ago, actually it was exactly two weeks ago, you may not even remember it because in the last two weeks there has been a lot of things happening in the news, in the world. Um, does anybody remember two Sabbaths ago? August the 21st. Does it stand out for anybody? It was rainy here. You might have gotten wet when you were coming in or leaving church. You might have probably had to stay in Sabbath afternoon because it was a dreary day. That's what we experienced here in Collegedale. But about three and a half hour drive from here, just a little west of Nashville, is a little town called Waverly, Tennessee. Waverly, Tennessee, two weeks ago today, experienced a vastly different day than we had here. Because in Waverly, they had 17 inches of rain. And uh, if, if you see any videos, and I would encourage you to look this up, look at the videos of, of the floodwaters rising in Waverly and how the creeks and the rivers just begun to sweep through this small town as 17 inches of rain fell. And before that day was over two weeks ago, just three and a half hours from here, 22 people had died in the flooding. And like I said, there's been so much other stuff happening that you may not have even heard about it or have forgotten about it because of hurricanes and COVID and, and wars and all these different things. Now on August 21st, two weeks ago, uh, a man by the name of Joel Boyers was going out to celebrate with his fiancee. He is a helicopter pilot, and she had just completed the requirements so that she could have her helicopter pilot's license as well. And as they were going to celebrate, Joel received a phone call from someone in an entirely different state, and they said, Joel, we need your help. My family member's house is being flooded. Could you do anything about it? So Joel and his fiance, they got into their helicopter and flew about, I believe it was 60 miles or so over to Waverly. Before they got there, they had to find a place to touch down because they had the address of this house um, and they, they sat down and realized that the cell towers weren't working, the, the GPS, all that stuff wasn't working so they couldn't pinpoint the address of this particular house. So they said, well, we're going to try anyway. And I want to read his words. This is what he said. He said, as soon as I popped over the ridge, remember he's in a helicopter, it was nothing but tan raging water below me. There were two houses that were on fire. There were cars and trees. There was tons of debris. So that's the scene as he flies his helicopter over this small town that's, that's being completely inundated with water. And so he's an experienced helicopter pilot. She's just got her license, but she's helping him look out for power lines, for trees, for people on rooftops. And he's going from place to place. He said he saw uh, two other boats that were trying to rescue people and one person on a jet ski that was trying to make their way around and help people. And we have another picture of uh, the helicopter perched on top of a gas station uh, because everywhere he went, he was seeing people and he was landing this helicopter on the roof. Uh, sometimes one 
runner on the roof and one off, sometimes hovering next to the roof, sometimes landing on the peak of the roof so that people could get to him. And then there's some videos, and I would encourage you to, to seek these out. He would fly just a really short distance, and he would take this helicopter across the raging water, and there was a place of safety. There was dry land. There was a high area, and he would drop the people off, and he would fly back over the raging water and rescue someone else. There were people that were desperately in need. And in this case, there was someone else who had the means and the experience and the equipment to know what to do to help them out of a situation. It seems like often in our world, in our life, it's really easy with 24-hour news services all around us inundating us with everything that's happening in the world. It's really easy to uh, just focus on the stuff that the news puts out, which is the, the bad stuff, usually. And, and we focus on the challenges and on the storms and on the wars and on the diseases. And, and these are really, really bad things. But if that's all that we see, it's, it's easy to think that we are trapped in the midst of this terrible situation and that we are by ourselves. When in the reality is that yes, we may be in a terrible, awful, horrific situation. That, that part may be true, but we are not there alone. We are not there by ourselves. We may be in a storm, but we have someone who knows how to help, how to rescue us. I want to turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start in Hebrews and then by the time we end, we'll find ourselves in the book of Acts. But in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 23, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. The author of this book writes, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Are we in need of hope in our world today? I think that often we are because many times the things in this world seem hopeless. But with Jesus, our Savior, that we talk about each week here in this place, we have something that we can be hopeful for. And this verse says, let us hold fast, hold on, without wavering, without letting go, without being pushed off. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Jesus has promised that he's going to be with us until the end of the age. Jesus has promised that through good times and bad times, he's going to be with us. Jesus has promised, he said, let not your heart be troubled. I'm coming again. Even in the midst of this awful world, we have something that we can hope for. It's in the future. It's not quite here yet, but we can look forward to what is coming. And this verse says, hold on to that hope because he who promised is faithful. So, so keep that in mind. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is the reason for hope. But look at the next verse, verse 24. It takes, believe it or not, it takes, uh, it takes the conversation away from Jesus in a, in a little bit of a way because it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works goes on in verse 25, not forsaking 
the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another or encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We have Jesus, this the one that gives us hope, this one that we can hold on to without wavering. And as we're holding on to Jesus, it says, let us consider each other. Let us encourage each other with love. Let us not forsake meeting together. Let us encourage each other even more as we get closer to the day when Jesus comes again. And it's really easy to look at the news in our world and to think Jesus must be coming soon. But one thing I know for certain, that from today to tomorrow to the next day, each day we are one day closer to when Jesus comes, whenever that may be. Each day that goes by, we are one day closer. This says, let us consider one another. Don't stop encouraging one another. Don't stop meeting with each other. And even more so as we get closer to when Jesus comes. Because believe it or not, this may be hard to believe, but we live in challenging times. Our world now, today, is difficult. And we know people that are hospitalized, that are sick, that are mourning, that are battling with death. Even now, we live in challenging times. We need encouragement. We need to stop fighting each other, to stop yelling at each other, and, and to lift each other up. It seems like now more than ever, people in our society just want to, to butt heads. They look for any excuse to argue with somebody else. You've probably seen videos on the news or whatever. People are at a baseball game enjoying an evening at the baseball game, and suddenly a brawl erupts. There's fist fights going on because somebody said the wrong thing or looked the wrong way or was wearing the wrong jersey, and so they're pummeling each other in the stands. Or somebody going to the airport and getting into a screaming match with the stewardess or the security guards or whatever it is, and just yelling at each other and just looking for any excuse to, to be combative to be in a conflict, to fight. And, and whatever people are yelling about is not the issue. But I'm gonna tell you that if you're screaming at someone, there is no way that you're showing that person the love of Jesus. If you're getting into somebody's face and fighting for something, fighting that person, yelling at that person, even if, if your side is right, whatever that is, if, if you have that attitude, there's no way that you're winning that person to Jesus. You're probably not even winning that person to your side of the conversation, whatever that is. But in our society, we are just, it seems to be itching to fight each other. When this says, as we get closer to the day, we should consider one another to stir up love, uh, to encourage one another, and even more as we get closer to Jesus coming. We saw a video a little bit ago, 20 years ago, can you believe it? 9-11, where were you? What were you doing? You probably remember. And we remember on 9-12-2001 that people seemed to come together. And yet here we are 20 years later in another 
challenging situation, and it seems as if more often we are fighting instead of encouraging each other. Now, I've never had the privilege to see them, but maybe some of you have. Have any of you been to California and seen the, the giant sequoia trees? Anybody seen those? Several hands have gone up. I've never seen them. These are incredible trees uh, that grow up to 300 feet tall. That's a 30-story building, maybe bigger than any building in Chattanooga. I'm not sure. 30-story um, building, and they're 40 feet in diameter. They're 40 feet around. You can see the tiny person at the trunk there, uh, looking up at this massive tree uh, that grows in, in California. And you would think that a massive structure like this, the, the biggest living thing that has ever been, some of them are 3,000 years old, that it would have a root system that would drive to the center of the earth in order to support this giant structure. I know Pastor Jim can probably tell you how much concrete we have in this new building over here. He sometimes talks about how much concrete, you, you will never see it. It's there, but it's, it's buried underneath to support that structure, to support that building. What I learned just recently is that these giant sequoia trees, they do not have a tap root, which drives down very deep. Instead, they have a lot of roots that go out far in different directions. Four feet, six feet deep is as deep as these roots go. But the secret of the sequoia tree is that they most often grow in groves. They grow in clumps, they grow together. And so that as their root systems stretch out, not very deep under the surface, but they're intermingling, they're intertwining, they're becoming connected with the trees around them. So that when those winds blow through the California mountains and when the earth shakes and those California earthquakes, those trees more often than not stand tall, not because of one single root, but because they're intertwined, they're interconnected together. And so they can grow tall because they grow together. And maybe that's something that we as a church can learn from. Because it seems to me that togetherness is a, a foundation uh, that the early church, the church in Acts, was based on. We think of the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. About three and a half years, he taught and he preached and he healed people and he went around. And, and as Jesus, as you read through the gospel, sometimes you see Jesus in front of a large group of people. Pastor Jerry's been studying the, the Sermon on the Mount here not too many weeks ago, where Jesus talked to a large group of people. And we read stories about Jesus feeding the 5,000, 5,000 people. And we know, because it says 5,000 men, that there was probably at least 10,000 people there. So Jesus was talking to a huge crowd of people. But more often, as you read through the Gospels, you don't see Jesus in front of a large group of people, but you see Jesus with 12 people that he called to be with him. And he's sitting down to, with them and he's teaching these 12 disciples. Or you see Jesus sitting in the living room of Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and conversing with them and, and sharing with them. Or you see Jesus even with a smaller group of people, three people, three of his disciples, and they would go a little bit further away from everybody else and they would pray together and they would learn together. And Jesus would teach this smaller group of people. 
Then, of course, we know the story that as Jesus' ministry is three and a half years uh, came to an end, Jesus died for our sins, and he was soon to ascend to go back to heaven, but he left some instructions. So I want to go to Matthew chapter 28. We could go to most any of the Gospels, but Matthew 28 is probably the most familiar, often referred to as the Great Commission. It says the disciples were there, so we know there was at least... 11 at this point. It says they were there, they worshiped, but some doubted. Even as Jesus had been resurrected and he's about to go to heaven, he's leaving instructions with some who still have some sort of wonder. They still aren't sure about this whole thing. And yet Jesus leaves them with this great commission. And we'll start in verse 19. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So Jesus is there with his disciples, and he tells them to go and make disciples. So the disciples are to go and make other disciples. That, that makes sense, right? He tells these 11, there's probably some others there. He tells these disciples to go and make disciples. And that's exactly what they do. And as would be expected, they begin to do it in the same manner that they have observed Jesus making dis disciples. And if you read through the book of Acts, sometimes they are there with a large group of people in a coliseum, in an amphitheater. Sometimes they are there in front of the temple talking to a large group of people. But sometimes, and probably more often, they're meeting from house to house. Paul's meeting with a jailer and his family in, in the home. He's meeting with Lydia by the riverside. He's meeting with the synagogue, which has 10 or 12 or 20 people. He, they're meeting in smaller groups, just like Jesus had done, just like they had learned how to make disciples. So let's turn over to Acts chapter 2. So Jesus has ascended to heaven. Uh, he tells them, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and so forth. And it, Jesus ascends back to heaven and the disciples wait. There's 12 of them now. They've chosen another. There's 120 people gathered together in an upper room and they're waiting because that's what Jesus told them to do. And it says that they tarry, they wait there for 10 days. They're, they're praying, they're together. Uh, these are the people that had often argued with each other and fought with each other. One had denied Jesus, you know, all this group of people, they're, they're together for 10 days until suddenly that day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, and something happened. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that is exactly what happened. It says that the room was, was shook, the, the, the wind was blowing, people outside were wondering what was happening. It, it was a, a physical, something was happening. And, and they step outside of this upper room that they are in and they begin to preach and they begin to speak. Speak in other tongues, speak in other languages. It lists several countries there the people are from and they say, we hear these people speaking in our language. And Acts chapter 2 is this sermon, this message about the crucified Jesus that they're preaching. And uh, as you get down towards the end of Acts chapter 2, the people stand up and interrupt. They, they stop the sermon. 
And you'll find if you read through the book of Acts that most often this is what happens when they're preaching a sermon. Either the people interrupt the sermon by wanting to kill them, throw rocks at them and stone them, or they interrupt them and say, wait, 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 tell us what we got to do. We, we hear this message and that's what happens here. The people in verse 37, it says they're cut to the heart and they say, men and brethren, what are we supposed to do? And in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. And then we skip down to verse 41 and it says, when those who gladly received his word were baptized that day about, how many is that? Three, 3,000 souls were added to them. Now we just had one awesome baptism and that's the best day. So Christine, we're glad that you are a part of our church family. So it's amazing when we have a baptism, but imagine if next week, instead of having one baptism, we had 3,000 baptisms. How long would that take? I don't know. I was once involved, I was in the Philippines and we had, I think it was like 100 baptisms and there were three of us baptized and that took a long time for three of us to baptize 100 people. Uh, imagine 3,000. And what would we do if 3,000 people showed up here next week? They wouldn't all fit in this room. They wouldn't all fit in first service. We'd have to start second service. They wouldn't all fit there. We'd probably have to do like third and fifth and sixth and seventh service to, to get everybody to fit in here. And, and what if you came and there were 3,000 people and somebody was sitting in your seat? What would you do then? Would you be excited? You're like, oh, wait a second. And how would you get to know the names of 3,000 people? Do you, do you know the name of everybody in this room? I'm sorry, but I do not, and I apologize for that. Imagine if there were 3,000 more people. What would we, how would we react logistically? It'd be an awesome challenge. I'd love to, to have that problem. But here we have 120 people. We're a much bigger church. We're 10 times the size of that church. 120 people, and suddenly they have 3,000. And guess what? They don't have a beautiful church building like this. They don't, the temple isn't really a place for, for public worship, especially when you're talking about Jesus. Uh, they, you know, where, what are they going to do? Well, let's read through this. Let's figure out what they did. We're going to read from 42 to 47, and then we'll come back and look at some of this. It says they continued steadfastly. So 3000 people had just been baptized. They continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So they went from, 
you know, 12 to 120 in the upper room to 3,000. And then it says the Lord added daily to those who were being saved. What was the secret? How did they manage? How did they, how did these disciples make sure that they were making disciples just as Jesus had told them? Well, let's go back to verse 42. It says they, this group of people, they continued steadfastly, or some versions say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What are you devoted to? Is there anything you're devoted to? I know football season is starting up here. Is there a team you're devoted to? Are you devoted to your job? Students, are you devoted to your grades? Are you devoted to your, your spouse or your parents or your, your children? What are you devoted to? Well, this group, it says, was devoted to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. Well, guess what? We have the apostles' teaching. We have the apostles' doctrine. It's called the New Testament. That's what the New Testament is, is they taught people as they wrote down this message about Jesus. We have uh, some of the words of Peter and James and John and the, the ones that hung out with, with those like, like Mark and uh, Luke who went and studied and met with these people and Paul who was an apostle a little bit later. We have the apostles' doctrine. This shows me that the church was not just about the emotion of the moment, what must we do to be saved? But this was disciples making disciples. And so they were remembering the words of Jesus. They were remembering the teachers of Jesus as these disciples were eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to the, to the crucifixion and they saw Jesus after the resurrection. And they were talking about this message of love and truth that Jesus had shared with them. Okay, so they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine, and to fellowship. Fellowship. Now, the Greek word here is a, is a word called koinonia. Maybe you've heard that used from different times. Koinonia simply means being together, being, having things in common. And as we read down through there, we see that they had, had many things in common, material things in common, as they supported each other, as they took care of each other, as they, we would say, had each other's back if there was a need. They were taking care of each other in the good times and the bad as they fellowshiped, as like those roots of the sequoia, as they intertwined themselves into each other's lives. It's, studies have shown that when people join a church, that they need to make, they need to have seven different friends, seven different connections within six or 12 months, or guess what? They won't be here in six to 12 months. They need to have seven connections. Now you might be able to look around this room and maybe you don't know everybody's name like we just determined, but maybe you could look around and say, oh yeah, I've got, I've got seven connections here. I'm, I'm safe. I'm fine. That's great. That's awesome. But maybe there's somebody sitting here close to where you are, and maybe they don't have seven connections. And, and maybe, could it be possible that in a church this size, that they could come in, sit, sing, listen, turn the pages of their Bible, 
and walk back out and not make even one connection, not have even one person look at them, talk to them, ask them how their week has been, that's very possible. So while you may say, I'm safe, I've got seven connections, maybe there's somebody very close to you right now that doesn't, and maybe they need you to be connection number one, and then you can introduce them to connection number two. So don't just sit back and say, oh, I'm good. Look around. Is there somebody that you could say hello to? Is there somebody that you could meet? Is there somebody that you could connect with? Is there somebody that you could begin to have fellowship with? We continue on in verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread. That sounds good. Anybody hungry? Down lower, it says they broke bread daily from house to house. And so I think this could have two different meanings. One is they ate together. There's very few things that are more intimate than sharing a meal with somebody else going to lunch or breakfast with somebody, inviting somebody into your house, your dining room, your kitchen table, and sitting down and eating with them. There's a bond that is made when that happens. But I think this could also be talking about something else. Because there's another place in Scripture where it talks about breaking bread. And that's the night before Jesus was crucified, where Jesus took the bread and, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And we celebrate that when we participate in the communion or the Lord's Supper as we are breaking bread together, as we are participating and worshiping the God who gives us hope, the Jesus who died for our sins. And so as we break bread together, this is looking at us worshiping together and also uh, fellowshipping through food and social things. And then finally, it says they devoted themselves Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayer. Now, we've just seen that they spent 10 days together in prayer, waiting. There, there's a power in prayer. As we talk to God as to a friend, there's tapping into the very resources of heaven. And, and those four pillars, those four things, seem to be what this early church did when they went from 120 people to 3,000 people. And then it says they added daily those who were being saved. That they were studying together, they were praying together. And you know what? You can study the Bible with other people, and that's awesome. But you can study the Bible by yourself, too. And I hope that you do that from time to time. And, and you can pray with a group of people, uh, and that's great. You can meet here on Friday morning and prayer walk around the church with the group that does that, and that's great. But you can also pray by yourself. In fact, Jesus says when you pray, go in your secret closet and don't let other people know. Don't publicize it. So you can study the Bible and you can pray with people, but you can also do that by yourself. But when it says they devoted themselves to, to fellowship, to koinonia, guess what? You cannot do that by yourself. That requires other people to have fellowship. You've got to, to be intermingling. You've got to be with other people. And so these disciples realized that we need each other. The disciples were making disciples the way that Jesus had taught them. Russell Burrell, in one of his books, he writes, Jesus revealed that the way to reach the masses 
was through small groups of people experiencing genuine community. And it seems as if you read through the book of Acts that that's how things continued. I want to go back quickly to Hebrews chapter 10, where we started. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Even in this world that seems to be going down the drain, we have hope because of what Jesus has done because of what Jesus has promised, we have hope that we can hold on to without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And as we're holding on to Jesus, verse 24, let us consider, what's that next phrase? One another. Let us consider one another. You may not realize it, but that phrase, one another, is used about 40 or 50 times in the New Testament. I've got a list of all of them here. I'm not going to read them all, but I'm going to read some of them. And I'm going to read them really fast. So I'm going to take a deep breath. 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another. John 13, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 14, stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 15, instruct one another. 1 Corinthians 1, agree with one another. Galatians 5, serve one another. Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians 3:16, admonish one another in all wisdom. 1 Thessalonians 5:17, encourage one another and build each other up. And there's more. The Bible is clear that we need each other. We need to support each other. We need to hold on to Jesus because he is our hope. But as we get closer to his coming, we need to lift each other up and encourage each other. Now, how do we do that? How can we do that? Well, it involves taking a large group and finding connections. It's really hard to make a connection with this big of a group. But if there's a smaller group of people, guess what? It's much easier to make a connection. So if you got here at 1130 today to come for church, praise the Lord, we're so glad that you're here. But did you know that if you would come at 10 o'clock, just a little bit before, there's a lot of groups that meet in this building uh, that would study different things, the life of Jesus or the book of Revelation or uh, the Sabbath school quarterly. There's lots of different groups. And if you're a part of a Sabbath school class, guess what? You've already got a connection. That's a small group of people that you are getting to know people as you are uh, devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching and, and to prayer and to fellowship. If you're not part of a Sabbath school, try it out. Find one. Experiment. Go to one this week. Go to another one the next week. Find the one that best fits your needs. Find a Sabbath school. That's one way you can start to make connections. Uh, maybe in your bulletin or at least out on the, the welcome desk, there's a little brochure like this. I'm not sure if you got this or not, but if not, grab one on the way out because this is a, a list of, I don't know, 12 or so different small groups that are, that are starting in the next few weeks. Uh, different ways to make connections as, as you want to read, as you want to be in a, a women's group, if you want to sing in the choir for the Christmas program, if you want to play softball, there's lots of different things happening Pick this up. Find one 
that might interest you, send a message to the, the leader and say, hey, I want to be a part of that group. Maybe you say, well, there's nothing in here that I'm interested in. That's okay. Grab one of those connect cards. We got, uh, we got a mission for you too. Grab one of those connect cards and say, I would like to lead out in a group that does this, whatever it is. I want to play Frisbee golf on Sunday mornings. Write that down. I want to do this. I want to cycle with people. I want to go mountain biking. I want to go jogging. Uh, if there's something you want to do, fill it out and we will find a group and find a time for that group to begin to meet. I just found out this, this morning that there's a group that plays Rook. I, I like Rook, so. I found out this week, there's a, and I wish I would have put it in here, there's a group that rides motorcycles, the CC Riders. Um, Vic Vossen is in charge of that. And I got the information, I asked him the day this was getting printed. So if you like to ride motorcycles, contact Vic Vossen because he said that they ride on the first Sunday of the month. Do you know what tomorrow is? It's the first Sunday of the month. Unfortunately, I don't know what time. Is Vic here today? If he, I, I don't see a hand, but contact him and find out what time to meet and, and where you're going to ride because tomorrow would be a beautiful day to get out on a motorcycle. Whatever it is, find a way to make connections. And I know that there's other groups of people that are gathering to study the Bible, to study a book, to have fun together, that are making connections and, and making ways that you can encourage one another and build each other up. And I hope that you will do that. Look through this thing and find one or find a different way to make a connection. Now, Joel Boyers and his fiance were flying the helicopter through the floods of Waverly. Put up this, yeah, you got, already got it up. There's, you can barely see it, but there's four people on that roof uh, of this store. And uh, one of those people is a, is a wife. And just shortly before this, her husband had been swept away and ended up losing his life. He was one of the 22 people that had lost his life. She'd been separated from her daughter. She didn't know if her daughter was alive. She didn't know uh, what had happened to her daughter, but, but uh, Joel and his fiance landed here and it took them a couple trips, but they got the people into the helicopter, flew them over the water and dropped them to safety. And as they, they dropped the mother to safety, uh, they went and, and got someone else and brought them back and it was the daughter who'd been separated. And in this, this patch of dry ground, this high spot that was out of the floods, the mother and the daughter on the worst day of their life, because they'd lost a family member, on the worst day of their life, they were reunited. They were brought together. Now, there's going to be some days, there's going to be some weeks when you're the person on the roof, that you're having the worst day, the worst week of your life, and you are desperately in need of someone to encourage you. But there's gonna be some days when you're the person in the helicopter, that you have, uh, you, this week you had the best connection with God, everything seemed to go your way, and you want to tell somebody about it. And the way that a church family works, the way that we can encourage one another is that when we, we know each other enough that we can recognize that when you're having a bad day and I'm having a good day, that I can encourage you today because next week I'm going to need you to lift me up. Because next week I'm going to be the one on the roof and you're going to be the one in the helicopter and you're going to come and support me. 
In fact, Joel Boyer is the pilot. He said, I literally prayed just days before this that God would give me some meaning in my life. And I ended up getting this call. And while 22 people died that day, he was able to rescue 17 in his helicopter and take them from the the flooded waters and take them to the place of safety. Where are you today? Are you on the roof? Are you in the helicopter? We can help each other. We can grow together. We can be connected. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear God, you do so much for us. You've given us hope that we can hold on to. Help us, Lord, because some of us right now may be desperately seeking something, and we may not be seeing it. Help us to find somebody that can encourage us. And Lord, maybe this week we're just flying high. Help us to find somebody that we can encourage. Help us to be connected so that we can encourage each other and build each other up as we get closer to when you come again. In your name we pray.